Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullman, your host on the Bird Banter Podcast, where birders talk birding. If you want to know information, detailed information, about the natural areas around you, you could do worse than to ask a birder. Birders, in my experience, are really, really familiar, very intimate almost, uh, with the natural areas of their county and state. I have good birding friends, Ken Brown, Bruce Labar, Marcus Roenig, who, I mean, they just know Washington in a way that people who don't bird really don't know the state. I mean, people who have other outdoor hobbies, hunters, for example, I mean, they tend to go to relatively limited areas to do their hunting or their fishing uh, or other uh, hiking, even other sorts of areas. But birding can be done in just about, it's done in cities, it's done in city parks, it's done in little oases here and there, it's done in the mountains, it's done in the deserts, it's done in the agricultural areas. So if you want to know a good hotel to stay in Afreda, Washington, ask a birder. If you want to know where to eat in Omak, ask a birder. Uh, If you want to know a good place to go birding, ask a birder. They're probably going to know their way around really as well as just about anyone. Uh, And if you want to know where the closest sewer treatment plant or landfill is, Ask a birder that, too. They'll know all those sorts of things. Well, my guest today is Darren Clark. Darren is from southeast Idaho, and I really you know, don't know my way around Idaho at all, but I feel like I know my way around a little bit better after talking about the birding year in eastern Idaho. Darren is very familiar as a top eBird lister in the state, as an eBird reviewer. I mean, he just knows Idaho really well, has lived there for most of his life, and as a top birder, I really had a great time uh, talking about birding in general and photography. Darren is also uh, an expert photographer, teaches uh, photography at BYU Idaho and uh, so we talk a little about about photography also so help me welcome to the Bird Banner podcast Darren Clark Darren thanks for joining the Bird Banner podcast I appreciate you coming on as a guest how are you doing today I'm great it's my pleasure thanks for the invitation yeah, you're my first Idaho birder, uh, state just next door I thought I'd have somebody from Idaho sooner so welcome Idaho <laughs> glad to be here and not just an Idaho birder, but the top eBird lister from Idaho. Uh, at least that's what I thought I saw on the on the Idaho on the eBird website. Is that accurate? It is accurate. Uh, there may be a a birder or two that have more species in Idaho. I don't I don't think there are, but there may be. If they are, they don't use eBird. But uh, I am passionate about my Idaho list, and in fact, just. Uh, I think it was last weekend, a friend and I took a drive from Rexburg to Lewiston, which is a nine-hour drive to add mm-hmm. American black duck to my list. So, uh, Oh, wow. I'll so do what it have, takes. <laughs> yeah, very nice. Chasing. Chasing is always fun. Uh, I have I have a, a good friend uh, who's been on the podcast before who's just the ultimate chaser, and he always says that uh, the first rule in a chase is go now, and the second rule is if you don't know if you don't go now, don't complain, uh, because uh, you could have gone now. <laughs> <laughs> well, life gets in the way sometimes, yeah. but uh, yeah. and I, I, I've tried to cull the chasing a little bit, although I have fewer birds to chase. But uh, yeah. I do enjoy more than anything finding my own birds. But you got to do what you got to do sometimes. They are sweeter when you find them yourself, no doubt about that. Uh, so I, I know little about birding Idaho. Uh, I, I 
I think of Idaho as a, a big mountainous forest. I, I don't uh, have much experience other than driving I-90 across the state. Uh, tell me about Idaho birding. Well, I think what's interesting about Idaho is it's like the the I-90 part that you drove through is kind of like birding Washington. Um, and where we are in, in eastern Idaho is a little bit like birding Yellowstone National Park. Other parts of it are like birding Nevada. It's it's or Utah. It's a it's got a, a variety of habitats, and it's a it's a fun place to bird. There's not a lot of birders in Idaho, and so you feel like you can make your own discoveries. Um, but yeah, like where I live is I'm in the Snake River Plain. I'm in eastern Idaho, about an hour south of Yellowstone National Park, give or take, and um, we're kind of where the Potato fields meet the mountains, I suppose. And okay. So we've got a, a variety of open country birds. There's a lot of sage steppe. We've got a lot of opportunities to bird uh, that sagebrush habitat, but also mountains and the Snake River. And, and uh, there's just a, it's a fun place to bird. Not a destination for a lot of people because I think you can get similar species in other states, but, um, but that's, that's part of, that's, kind of a reason it's kind of fun is because you do have a variety of location, different habitats. Yes. Uh, we have in Washington, we have Eastern Washington and Western Washington. We, we joke that it's almost like two different States, you, know, you go over the cascades and all of a sudden you're in a, you know, plains and sagebrush and shrub step and that sort of thing versus pretty much a uh, coniferous forest and uh, agriculture and, uh, and Puget Sound and the ocean on our side. So uh, besides the weather being different, the habitat's altogether different here too. So you've got, I, I looked at the list and, you know, to, to get over 300 species in a state, you've got to have a, a reasonable variety of, of habitats. Yeah. I mean, you, and we do, we even, I mean, I've, I, I'm a state lister, but I also care pretty passionately about I don't live in Jefferson County, but it's the county that's next to Madison County where I do live. Jefferson County is the county I bird more than any, and that's the county that I do a lot of listing. And I've got, I think, 302 species in that county. And so we, oh do, we do have a variety of habitats that come together in eastern Idaho. It's like the furthest north place that things like, at least inland, that juniper titmouse and black-throated gray warbler and gray flycatchers nest, but it's also... You know, we've got things like uh, the occasional boreal owl, great gray owls. Um, some of that boreal stuff comes down. And so it's kind of a nice mix of habitats and regions, I guess. Or, Always nice when you can get some nice varied birding without driving forever. Yeah, it is. Very nice. And of course, the uh, new Cassia Crossbill has uh, made Idaho a destination spot for the avid lister. It has. It's been interesting. I mean, that's a part of Idaho that nobody, hard, well, a lot of Idaho can be described that way, but that, that South Hills area is a place we, not a large population lives there and, and not very many people were birding it. So it's going to be, it has been interesting and it will continue to be interesting as more good birders visit that area uh, to find out what discoveries are made. Yeah, I was really uh, pleased. I, I went down there with a small group of friends from here and, uh, you know, right near where you enter that uh, mountainous circle from the west, uh, some big wetlands areas. I was really surprised we had a, a, we were there. I think June, uh, and had a good number of shorebirds, and it was well, kind of surprising. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, and that, that Jefferson County, the area I bird, we've got extensive wetlands out there too. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think if you've never been to Idaho, I guess you picture potato fields and mountains, but there's stuff kind of between there that's, that, that's, uh, there's other things that make it pretty good. So Now you're a born and, uh, born and raised Idahoan. Did you say Idahoan? Is that what you say? Yeah. I mean, I was born in Salt Lake city, but essentially I grew up in, I, I mean, I moved when I was five yeah. and went to school in other places. I went to school in Utah and Louisiana, but have spent most of my time in Idaho and, uh, mm-hmm. it's a good place. It's not a perfect place like any place, but, uh, you know, talk, you know, winters are really hard where I live, which makes for good birding, but uh, it's really cold and they get long. And uh, but uh, overall, it's not a bad place to be. So. I grew up in Maine and uh, okay, so I, I have I have a feel for the winters. <laughs> I, I tell people Maine is a great place to be from. <laughs> well, yeah, um, I've been to Maine. It is a nice place, but I've never been in the winter, but I imagine yeah. it's. It's it's probably uh, except the snow is wetter there. It's probably a lot the same. We yeah. get the heavy wet snow off the ocean. It's just um, icy and kind of messy. Yeah, winter birding is a lot of fun though. At least it around is. here it is. So yeah, some of our best birding in Western Washington is winter birding. We have the Skagit and Samish Flats, which are just terrific raptor spots and really really good. Yeah, I got my lifer. Uh jeer falcon there years and years ago so yeah it's a it's a good place for a jeer yeah uh, uh, good so have you been birding your whole life how did you get into birding i have well it feels like it as i'm <laughs> 50 years old now it feels like i've been birding my whole life but i i grew up catching snakes and frogs and butterflies and uh really enjoyed that but it was a good day in idaho if you could find two or three species of snakes, you know, and so it, it started to lose its appeal. I kind of wish I lived other places when I was growing up to do that. Uh, and then I, I took a, it was kind of just a general education biology class in Eastern Idaho where I went to school. Um, it was called Rick's College at the time. It's the place I teach now, which is BYU, the Idaho campus. Okay. Uh, I was required to take some biology class and I took field biology and the faculty member, um, Ryrie Godfrey was his name. His big push was birds. So we went out and uh, I was just blown away that in eastern Idaho, where I'd spent all my life, you could find things like snowy egrets and a, new, a bird I'd never even heard of, a western kingbird and uh, bullocks orioles. I mean, it was just eye-opening. And really, since I took that class, I don't think my passion, I, I've, I've was pretty committed to birding ever since. I mean, there were times when it kind of lulled. Um, I went to graduate school in art and photography at Louisiana State University, and that mm-hmm. that big kind of re- renewed, yeah, there. big. It yeah. is a big birding community with a lot of good birders and uh, ornithologists. And it, my first couple of times experiencing spring migration on the Gulf Coast, kind of renewed that uh, enthusiasm for birding. And really, since then, I haven't really looked back. So. Good for you. Yeah, birding is a wonderful, wonderful hobby. And it sounds like you kind of, uh, I was going to refer to you as a professional photographer. You reminded me or uh, encouraged me that you're not a professional (laughs) photographer, but I guess I think of someone who teaches photography at a college and and is an incredibly accomplished photographer as being a pro, but whatever. Well, Uh, I, (laughs) yeah, I guess I I didn't want to get too hung up on it. I just, I don't make a living. 
taking like I don't have clients that I photograph for necessarily. And, sure. But I I'm a passionate landscape photographer, and that's really where I I really kind of started photographing wildlife, particularly birds, relatively recently with the advent of digital technology. But sure. Um, I'm kind of a trained film photographer, large format landscape photographer. Um, and so I, I still enjoy both. Yeah. If people want to see some incredible landscape photography, they definitely need to check out your website. It's DarrenClarkPhoto.com, I think. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's correct. And that's kind of where I've archived kind of the best of. But if you want kind of an ongoing uh, what I'm doing sort of more recently, I have an Instagram page, Darren Clark, uh, just all one word, D-A-R-R-E-N-C-L-A-R-K. And okay. uh, I also have an Instagram account where I uh, put Idaho birds that I photograph, and it's called Idaho Birds. Okay, so you can follow Idaho Birds and Darren Clark, both at probably on Instagram. Instagram is not my uh, most uh, avidly followed uh, <laughs> site. I, I do like it, but I, I'm not a good enough photographer to feel like I have much stuff worth putting up, unlike you. Uh, and, and so I... Uh, tend to follow more on Twitter and, and that sort of thing. But uh, anyway, I, I visited your website and, you know, one of the things that for me was most interesting, I mean, your photography is fabulous, but under each sort of category, I guess, or grouping or whatever, you write a nice little essay that kind of tells your story and why you're doing this and a little history and a little natural history or whatever. It's just really fun to look at. It's a cool website. Oh, thanks. I guess that's what, um, what fine art, I guess that's, if I'm categorized, I guess it's a fine art photographer, but that's kind of what fine art photographers do. They tend to work on long-term projects and have a reason for doing it and a uh, little research involved and then uh, kind of sharing both the research and the images is kind of what I do. So. Yeah, I, I saw my girlfriend loves to photograph barns. It's just sometimes drives me a little on the wacky side when we're out birding and we have to stop to get a little better light on this falling down barn in the middle of nowhere. Uh, but you, you had a series of uh, uh, potato, what are they, potato sellers or potato something or other. Potato sellers. Potato sellers. I had never thought about a potato seller. Now, when I when I grew up in Maine, we had a coal cellar. It was just a <laughs> part of the basement where you put your root vegetables and things for the winter and go down and get them when you wanted. So it's not terribly different, I guess. Uh, but these are like the biggest coal cellars in the world. Gigantic structures. They're really cool. Yeah, I mean, I, I and boy, people are going to be wondering if this is a bird podcast, but uh, um, I know... Maine grows potatoes. Well, I'm sure they have potato cellars, but essentially it's just a, a pit that the farmers used to dig in the hole and then just, I mean, dig in the ground, put timbers, cover those timbers with straw and soil and put a facade on either end. It was just a way to store cellars. And I'm really interested in those old structures. Um, most of them are falling apart and have been replaced with contemporary kind of vinyl and metal cellars. But, uh, Anyway, well, yeah. Well, now an out-of-state birder who goes birding in Idaho <laughs> and sees a barn that looks like it's sunk into the ground six feet will know it's a potato cellar. So exactly. it's important for birders, you know? <laughs> when they see the jeer falcon perched on the side of the potato cellar uh, waiting to hunt the uh, the big open fields, then they'll be be uh, all that more in tune that they know the, the falcon is perched on a potato cellar. Well, it's, it's kind of funny you said jeer falcon. It wasn't a jeer falcon. We used to have a, there's a place I like to go birding in the winter, not far from here. It's just open farm fields, um, really good for things like uh, snow buntings and uh, 
horned larks, Lapham longspurs. Mm-hmm. And we, there used to be one of those old cellars up there. And, you know, they're kind of have this dirt side that's at about a 45 degree angle. Mm-hmm. And it was the one consistent place among all those kind of open bird, open country birds. It was the one consistent place to find uh, rosy finches because they would get on that. I think it reminded them of a little mountainside or something. Yeah. So. Anyway. cliff or something. Yeah. yeah. Very cool. Uh, it's, it's funny how we all have our places that we uh, always go back to because we know what to expect. And, and sometimes it, it works and sometimes you find unexpected things, but it's a, uh, we're creatures of habit, I think, just like the rosy finches. <laughs> yeah. Good. Uh, so tell me about the birding year in Idaho. Uh, I mean, everybody has their you know, breeding season and spring and fall migration and winter, but uh if you were going to go build a reasonable list in Idaho, where would you go when? Oh, man, it's kind of funny you asked. I did a presentation to our, and, and I guess my area of expertise is eastern Idaho. I'm not as familiar with like the Panhandle mm-hmm. or western Idaho, but eastern Idaho is where I'm really comfortable and really know that place well. But I did a an Audubon presentation to the Snake River Audubon, our local group out of Idaho Falls, about a year ago about this very topic, a birding year in eastern Idaho. And uh, so, and it was about 400 slides, so I'll try to condense it pretty short. But uh, if you start in winter, I mean, winter birding is great. Um, There's things, you know, I mean, you drive the open country looking for, you know, birds like I mentioned, long spurs, rosy finches, snow buntings, etc. In a good, in the right year, there are quite a few uh, red poles, if you can find, you know, birch trees either in towns or the mm-hmm. river birches along uh, different rivers and creeks, and you know other raptors and such, we have an area. Uh, it's it's the town is called How H O W E, and I think it's really an undiscovered gem. I think if more people knew about it, more people like all over the U.S. would probably visit it. In the right year, when we have a high vole population, we often go out there and can. In a in about a stretch that's about oh five miles wide by about eight miles north to south, maybe four hundred rough-legged hawks and um, ten twenty prairie falcons, ferruginous hawks. It's just a remarkable place. So in a good winter, uh, I go to visit that place for raptors, and then. Um, so, so t- tell me, how is obviously in eastern Washington, you know, how far from, I mean, more or less, where is it? Where is it? Uh, it's about, um, we have, I could describe a lot of places, but uh, it, I live in Rexburg, Idaho, which is on the eastern side. It's about an hour west, but it's, um, it's halfway between Idaho Falls on the east and Arco in central Idaho. I mean, it's really in the middle okay. of nowhere. It's mm-hmm. the Little Lost River Valley. Um, is is what it is. Seriously? That's the name, the Little Lost River? Yeah, there's the Big Lost River and the Little Lost River. They're called that because <laughs> they they start in the mountains, and it's pretty fascinating, actually. So they start high in the mountains, these two river drainages, uh-huh. and um, and they never, and before they have a chance to, like, dump into another tributary, um, like, they, the, the water sinks into the lava fields, mm-hmm. and... Um, and so the rivers are dry. They start out pretty lush, and then they dry up, and then the the river, the water emerges, uh, like, I can't remember the amount of miles, 50 miles to the south. It emerges oh, wow. out of the hillside, and it dumps into the Snake River and some big springs that are down there. So it's so pretty it, fascinating. So it does get to the Snake River, but it just goes underground for a ways. 
underground and apparently there for I can't remember decades before it emerges. It's it's a pretty cool. <laughs> it's a whole. It's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, that's South, a fascinating okay. place. Uh, that little Lost River Valley. But then you like about February. If we've had a lot of snow, which we often do in the mountains, uh, great gray owls seem to find their their way to the valleys, um, kind of north of Rexburg, where I live, up to oh the Island Park area, which is a forested area to the north. Um, but these are kind of just in like along a little ditch or a river. Uh, mm-hmm. You'll often find great gray owls. Uh, then you know, some long-eared owls and some saw-wet owls. So we kind of start to look for owls in in February and March. And then by that mm-hmm. time, things start moving. We've got snow geese start arriving and sandhill cranes. And, and so, you know, April, we start to spend quite a bit of time in some wetlands um, looking for migrating waterfowl and, and then shorebirds. And then, uh, and then where most of my birding friends and I spend a great deal of time in the spring, there's, a, there's several migrant traps. Um, oh, Camas National Wildlife Refuge, Market Lake, Mud Lake. There's kind of these three areas that are essentially, there's woods and water in the middle of a vast kind of agriculture, sagebrush. It sounds like some of the migrant traps that you're familiar with in eastern sure. Washington. And uh, we'll just kind of spend as much time as we can there uh, looking for rarities and have had a, had good success finding really unusual birds out at those places. Vagrants are always fun, aren't they? Oh, yeah, they're uh, awesome. I, yeah. I, I've had uh, a couple of uh, experienced birders tell me that, you know, we don't go looking for rare birds very often. We just go looking for common birds where they don't belong. <laughs> well, that's, that is true. Uh, most of these birds are common somewhere, but not in yeah, yeah. not in Idaho. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah, I had a lot of fun following Noah Stryker's World Big Year, yeah. uh, and uh, and he he emphasized that he uh, his strategy was not to find birds where they didn't belong, to just go go to all the places that uh, and find all the common birds in all those places. So, uh, yeah, I'm, certainly he found rare birds here and there, but his his goal was to uh, be in the places where a whole lot of species were common and see a lot of them. And he certainly had a fabulous year doing that, but yeah, yeah. that's pretty awesome. And then I guess, unlike a lot of States, summer is a great time to bird in Idaho. You know, you hear about the summer doldrums in a lot of places, but, but here we have so many nesting birds in the mountains. um, And we're always making discoveries like out at Camas National Wildlife Refuge for the last couple of summers, which is typically, it's just a marsh essentially. Mm -hmm. But, uh, we've discovered nesting blue grosbeaks out there, which is wow, very far north of where, you know, I like 150 miles to the south is the next kind of place where they're reliable. Um, so we, we make these little discoveries like that in the summer that you won't, you won't find if you're not out. But, but then obviously you can get up in the mountains and find nesting oh, everything we have here. I don't know sure. if start listing them, but uh, yeah. A, so you have a, a nice, uh, yeah, higher elevation nesting population, and then also, uh, you know, more birds of the wetlands and, and right. uh, riparian areas. And so you have a good, good breeding season is not slow. I, I have to say, you know, usually I think of that uh, last half of June, first half of July as a time to plan a vacation somewhere, <laughs> not so much birding. Yeah, well, we try to vacation in 
I don't know, January, February when it's 10 below. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a whole separate, whole separate issue. My, my daughter lives in Costa Rica. Uh, and so I am hoping, hoping, hoping uh, that I'll feel uh, comfortable traveling this winter, sure. that little time where it's warm. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, yeah. And then it starts pretty early. I mean, migration starts in July with shorebirds. And uh, there's another place that's really good. It's American Falls Reservoir. It's a... Uh, and it's about 20 miles east or west of Pocatello, Idaho. So it's in the, again, southern, southeastern part of the state. But it's essentially a, there used to be a town, well, there still is a town called American Falls. But when they built this reservoir, they they essentially kind of moved the town below the river. and But they kept all the foundations of the town. So if we go to the reservoir after the water draws down, Mm-hmm. You can find the old streets and the old foundations of homes and <laughs> banks and such. And that's funny. And it's a remarkable shorebirding spot, um, at least most years. And it, that starts about, if, depending on how far they've drawn it down, but it starts as early as mid July and goes through about now, you know. Mm-hmm. I, so it has enough variance in the water levels that it, it stays good. I yeah. feel like all of our shorebirding spots in my county, Pierce County, they're just, you know, that they're, they're good for about a week or two. You know, water's oh. too high, too high, and then it's muddy and then it's dry. <laughs> well, yeah, this is a huge reservoir. And the nice thing about it, it's pretty, it's pretty wide. And so the water, as the water recedes, it just reveals more and more mud. Um Birds just and, have to move over a little. Yeah, they just move and find the new, the new emerging uh, invertebrates. Um, Very nice. I uh, was there. For, I only made it there once this fall, but it was pretty nice. I got uh, my first my Idaho uh, buff-breasted sandpiper. I discovered there this fall, so I was pretty excited. So. Very cool. Um, anyway, we we kind of just. We kind of repeat the pattern. We go out into the migrant traps, the vagrant traps again in September and late August and look for unusual birds and then uh, settle in again for the winter. So that's then it's kind winter of a... before you know it. <laughs> yeah. Time for, that, time for that vacation at a beach somewhere in the south. Okay. Yeah. In fact, I was out this morning and it was it started out about 20 degrees. I think it got up to about 32 degrees today, but we're starting winter already here for sure. Yeah, it feels like winter here. It was uh, below 30. It was just below oh. freezing here in, in Puget Sound. Yeah, that's so cold over there. Definitely so. cold for here. And we're having a good year for white wing crossbills. At least some birders are having a good year oh. for white wing crossbills. I am not one of those yet this year, but uh, they're, they're, uh, it seems like a good finch, finch and bunting sort of year overall. Are you having the same there? I haven't heard any reports of... Um white wing crossbills, or I've heard a couple of reports of red poles in the far north, but I haven't seen any reports of anything yeah. yet. But It's still a little it's, early. Yeah, a little early. But, I mean, come. we're having siskins. You just can't turn around without finding siskins. And a couple of years ago, to find a red crossbill here was really difficult. And now you just hear them all the time. So it's just been a good year How for cool. that sort of stuff. Probably not a good year farther north, I'm guessing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, wherever they came from. But I'm yeah. hoping that's that's what makes it fun. You never know what winter is going to be, and it's different a little bit every year. So it is, it is. Uh, I saw. Uh, I just looked at your eBird profile, and you've traveled a fair bit to bird. Certainly, you know, a huge amount of birding in, in Idaho. Uh, do you have some places that you just you can't wait to get to? Next time you have the uh, time, money, and inclination, you 
just dying to go somewhere in the ABA era. Where, where yeah. are your, your uh, desired birds living? Well, I've, I've kind of, when you reach a certain amount, you have a certain amount of birding experience. I'm sure you're the mm-hmm. same way where you've, I've gone to all the places, at least in the lower 48, I guess, where you can mm-hmm. go and pick up 10 lifers in a day yeah. or something, you know? Yeah. So it's, so now it's a matter of like, I still haven't done like, Eastern Colorado. So I need some of, the, and then into the Midwest. So I need some of those uh, grouse. Um, mm-hmm. So a trip in April for, uh, well, like the prairie chickens and the, and that sort of thing. So I, I've got that trip I want to do. But other than that, in the lower 48, I, I mean, I, I go back to Arizona and Florida and Texas as many times as I can. Um, of course. And I, well, and I, I would love, I haven't done a pelagic trip off of the, east coast so i would like to go to north carolina and, well, and if you need a if you need a buddy to go with that's on okay my, well let's, my let's... to-do list too so i have not made it yet I, I i'm just now learning to not uh uh not get sick on pelagic trips okay and so i feel like i've got that i've got that i've got my routine down now i'm okay uh if it's not horrible uh, <laughs> and so i feel like i i could i could muster up a few days on, on some okay. boats out of uh out of Cape Hatteras or, you know, wherever. Uh, and uh, so that's on my, my list too. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've done a handful, not very many, maybe four or five off the West coast and would, lo- mm-hmm. I mean, I really enjoy it and would love to do some more, but, and then obviously I haven't been, well, I mean, with the inclusion of Hawaii over the last few years into the ABA year, I've not birded Hawaii yet. So Hawaii and Alaska are two places that I would like to spend some time. So. Those are both wonderful destinations. Yeah. Good for you. Good for you. I want to just switch subjects a little bit uh, to your photography. Uh, again, I encourage uh, visitor, uh, listeners to check out your sites. I'll make sure I put those in the podcast notes and in the blog post that goes along with this. Uh, but uh, how did you become so interested in photography? And, and how does that relate to how you see things, uh, you know, birding in general? Uh, I hope this doesn't get too weird, but I will, I will say, um, when I was, we talked about this a little bit towards the beginning. When I was a kid, I loved to catch snakes and frogs and whatever else I could find insects and whatever. And I would bring them home and was always, I guess for me, it was a way to bring like catching a snake and bringing it to your garage or something was sort of a way to bring that experience home and relive it a little bit. Like you could mm-hmm. look at that snake again or that insect or whatever. And, um, and so that was pretty rewarding. But what was frustrating is that none of my friends or family members really cared about, I would share that with them and they would be like, eh, <laughs> they didn't care, you know? Um, so I, get I would, that snake out of my garage. Yeah. Get that snake out. Well, I, I did have fairly supportive parents. And so I'm grateful to that. They, I mean, they drew the line at rattlesnakes and such, but they were, they were pretty supportive, but um, I've just, and I was always interested in art in high school or junior high, I guess, drawing and painting, but I wasn't that good at it. And I took a photography class in high school and it seemed to do what, like my inclination to draw and paint, it kind of replaced that. It kind of filled that same niche, but it also, for me, it became it also replaced the niche or it replaced the need to bring home a snake or a frog because going out and photographing was another way to collect those experiences and bring them home. But unlike uh, 
when I would share a snake or a frog with a friend and they didn't care, people did like to look at my photographs. And so it was a way to keep that experience and to share that experience. Um, it's it's kind of how, why I became kind of consumed with photography, I guess. Nice explanation. Photographers don't say they capture uh, an image for nothing. I mean, it really is kind of a way of capturing a, 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 a nanosecond in, in time and a place. Yeah. And it's, uh, I mean, birding is also a way of collecting. And so I guess I'm a natural collector, but now it's collecting images and collecting memories, I suppose, more than actual objects. So, Yeah. Do you feel like uh, you're photography experience, uh, passion has, uh, helped make you a better birder? I'll t- let me, I'll maybe answer a slightly different question and okay. maybe I'll, let's see. So uh, what photography is like, well, photography itself, um, I've always, I mean, I've always been a photographer for, I mean, for a long, long time and I've been a bird watcher and the two kind of went down these separate paths for a while. Um, I was using these big cameras with film and it it didn't really lend itself to wildlife photography. So, I mean, yeah, I think I was a sharper observer because of photography or whatever, but the two kind of led separate lives in a way. Uh, But when digital photography came about and I started, I got a a long lens and a camera that was capable of making bird photographs, it, it really changed it made me a more, it made me more excited to go birding, I guess. You know, you bird, you bird in the same place for a long time and a place like Eastern Idaho, which isn't known for a lot of variety of birds, but there, there are some there, but it was like starting over, I guess. And so mm-hmm. um, now when I go out, if I find an accommodating crow that will let me take its picture, I'm happy to spend half an hour with a crow. Or if I find an accommodating I don't know. Today I was photographing chickadees and tree sparrows, and they're birds that I like, but prior to photography, I would have checked them off and left. And so for me, it, it kind of renewed a passion in birds, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's a, exactly what I was looking for as an answer. I just didn't ask the question. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. Uh, I'm going to hit on you as a, as a, expert uh, photographer. Uh, For those of us who, I mean, now most birders have some sort of digital camera, even if it's just their phone in their pocket. Uh, Are there any sort of uh, quick and dirty tricks you can teach us to to get uh, better pictures or at least uh, get passable pictures of uh, birds who want a picture of? Yeah. um, This is what I tell my friends. The, um, well, a couple couple of things. One is, um, the better the bird, the worse the photograph can be. I have some horrible photographs on my, well, they're not on my website or anything, but in my Flickr page or in eBird. And those are things like, uh, oh, a yellow-throated vireo from Idaho or a red-throated loon. They're great birds and they're horrible photographs. So I don't, you know, if, if it's documentation, it doesn't matter so much. But if you really want beautiful photographs, um, a couple of things I would do to start is I would make sure that you're, as familiar with your gear as you can be. And and that comes from making a lot of photographs, but I would find a place where there are accommodating birds and common birds and just spend some time photographing them. Just sit in a, in a park and photograph the chickadees and get really good at that, making sure you know your exposure and your settings and, and such. And then that, that way, when you're out 
in a new place or a place with more exciting birds, you're not thinking about your f-stops or your shutter speeds. It, it becomes intuitive. So that's one thing I was I would get very familiar with and comfortable with your gear. The second thing is I is light is uh, is important to. I mean, you don't have photography without light, and good bird photographs, as much as anything, have good light. And I mean, it's a simple thing, but not always. But typically. Just have the sun at your back and have your shadow pointing at the bird. More than anything, that's the the easiest way to get pretty good light on a bird. There are exceptions to that, but uh, and if you photograph on overcast days, the nice thing is you can photograph longer during the day because there's not shadows. Oh, photographing um, if it is a sunny day, photographing in the mornings and the evenings is going to light up the bird's face better than photographing in the middle of the day. I typically don't photograph birds in the middle of the day unless it's overcast or something. Or documentation shots. Or yeah, or yeah, shot. if I see something, I'm going to photograph it, but I don't go out to make beautiful photographs of birds in the middle of the day. Yeah, so those are a couple of things. And I guess lastly, just learn to sit still. You're going to have more photographic opportunities if you sit still and let the birds come to you rather than you kind of running after the birds. They're just going to fly away, typically. Yeah. I've heard, not just with photography, I've heard good birders who, especially in the tropics, but but anywhere that you have winter flocks or flocks of birds, uh, who have told me that the trick to, is to figure out what way the flock is moving and get ahead of it and let them just come to you. Uh, so that's the same idea. Yeah, same idea. Very cool. Well, that's really cool stuff. Uh, I can't wait to get to Idaho and do some birding now. It's not it's a, it's a drivable place from here. So it's a, uh, something, especially in this COVID time, maybe I'll uh, head farther east than I thought I might head sometime soon and check out Idaho. Uh, sounds like a fun place to go. If you make it over all the way to eastern Idaho, yeah, let's go out together. I think you'd, uh, it'd be fun to show you some of our our places out here. So. Same holds true. Once uh, once the, we don't have to stay away from strangers more than six feet uh, distance, uh, if you want to visit uh, Western Washington and catch a couple of projects some weekend, uh, we could manage that too. Yeah, my parents lived in the Seattle area for a while, and I, oh. for about 10 years in the, what would that be, late mid 90s or so. Mm-hmm. And man, I, I love birding Washington. Um, it's it's awesome. So it's a good place to bird. Yeah. So I'm going to uh, just uh, close with a couple of things. Uh, what's the best way for a listener to reach out to get a hold of you? Do you have a contact uh, thing on your website or how, how would somebody get a hold of you? Uh, yeah. I mean, several ways. I'm probably involved in too many social media things. But uh, yeah, my website, there's just a little uh, contact or about me information and it'll just take you to an email address. Okay. Uh, I've got a Facebook page. I mean, just a face. I'm on Facebook, just Darren Clark. And, um, but Instagram is, is kind of a, a nice place uh, to reach out. So just Darren Clark or Idaho birds on Instagram. Just, at all. just direct message you from either yeah. Facebook or Instagram or find you on your website. Yeah. That sounds perfect. And I also uh, for like to make sure my guests have a chance to shout out for something, some cause they think is important or just, you know, uh, just give a shout out to something that's important to you. What what would you pick if you had to do that? I think a couple of things. Um, no particular organization or group comes to mind. I would just support your local bird club, Audubon organization, what have you. But um, I do want to say something about um, 
eBird, I suppose. I'm an eBird reviewer, and it's a thankless mm-hmm. task. Uh, <laughs> I rarely does, yeah, rarely does somebody reach out and say, "Man, you're doing a good job as being an eBird reviewer." More often, that's it's uh, that filter's wrong, or how dare you question my sighting, or whatever it is. So, I guess a plea for those of you that are eBird users to realize uh, the amount of work it takes for an eBird reviewer to review those records and uh, and just hopefully appreciate your local local eBird reviewers and uh, treat them kindly, I suppose. Uh, and as much as anything, just get out and bird. I mean, no matter where you live there, your, your listeners know this, but no matter where you are, there's opportunities to see things and discover things. And uh, I would take advantage if possible. So. Well, that's great. Thanks for your service as an eBird reviewer. I have to say, I have such respect for eBird reviewers. I learn a lot from my eBird reviewers. Uh, Ryan Merrill is uh, one of the top eBird reviewers here in Washington. And I was birding at County Line Ponds off Highway 20 as you go over the North uh, Cascades and stopped there and uh, put a put a list in and I, and I put a Bewix run in my list. I heard you know sounded like a Bewix run to me. I put a Bewix run in the list. And a, a, and a few days later I got a, a nice email from Ryan said, "Ed, did you really have a Bewix run there? I bet I birded there 100 hours and that's just a little pocket with no Bewix runs. I'm really surprised. Do you think it could have been something else?" And I write back, "You bet it could have been something else. <laughs> I, I just didn't even think twice about putting it down, you know." Uh, so it, I learn a lot from eBird reviewers. Uh, uh, I, I wouldn't, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I th- it frustrates some eBird eBirders when they have a species that requires um, a sentence or two, I suppose. But man, if I'm birding either locally or somewhere else, and the little flag comes up, I'm excited because that means I saw something unusual and I get a chance to either provide a photograph or a description. And I, I think and it it's exciting. It makes you think twice. It makes yeah. you think twice. Was I right? Did I did I really see that? Yeah, that's what I saw. Okay, I'll put it. Or, you know, I didn't get much of a look at that. I just thought that's what it was. Maybe I should think yeah. that through. And I've been taken to task more than once when I'm traveling out of state by the by the local eBird reviewers there, and I, I just humbly said, "Yeah, I'm probably wrong." Or if I had a photograph, I thought. Sometimes I'm right, I guess, but uh, yeah. but it's okay. It's all part of the process. So. eBird has changed the changed the world of birding uh, irreversibly. I mean, uh, yeah, I, t- I talked to an e- uh, a couple of big year birders, you know, who did their big years uh, before eBird. Lynn Lynn Barber lives in uh, Alaska now. She was my guest, I think, my last guest, uh, and uh, she did a big year in Texas and a big year in Alaska. But before those. Uh, she did actually in between those, uh, she did an ABA big year back in, I think, 2005 or something like that. She wrote a book is really cool year, uh, but before eBird. And it's just it's just a different world when you have almost instantaneous or al- almost real time access to rare bird sightings all over the world. It's just so different. Yeah, I remember um, when I first moved to Idaho in the year 2000, I was just birding a park and this was middle of summer. I didn't think I would find anything and a yellow throated warbler popped up right in front of me. And I was like, Oh, and this was, I didn't have a cell phone. So I had to make sure I noted all the field marks marks of the bird. I got in my car, drove to a gas station to call my friend who lived half an hour away, Mm -hmm. wait, and then went back and made sure that I could find the bird. And then he got it and, 
and that today all you do is you stick it on eBird and people find out about yeah. it. So I've and lived eBird. in both. I've lived in both worlds for sure. And uh, eBird's uh, an easier way to be for sure. So. It is. It used to be almost a badge of honor being on the the telephone tree and that sort of thing. <laughs> so it's not only uh, changed the world. It's been much more egalitarian world where anyone who wants that information can get it now. You don't have to earn your way onto the phone trees and that sort of thing. So uh, it's a, an inclusive world for birding now, at least in terms of sharing information. Yeah. And I think that's a really good thing. I, I lived in places, I, I haven't really had a birding mentor per se. I'm kind of mostly self-taught and I would, I lived in places sometimes just not long enough to be a part of that. And I was really jealous of those groups that kind of went out together and I always felt kind of on the outside. And so I, I and I didn't like that feeling. So I'm glad that, uh, that it has kind of democratized, democratized yeah. birding. So. Yeah. Exactly. You know, inclusiveness is a huge theme in birding now, and a lot of us are, in our own little ways, trying to be more inclusive to all you know, young people, people of color, people, you know, every uh, other than old white men uh, <laughs> uh, group that's out there. Uh, not that old white men are bad <laughs> either, uh, but, uh, you know, just trying to be inclusive and, and just things like the information ages. Uh, uh, ability to let information get around freely and easily is huge. Yeah, it, it's great. And I try to remember what it felt like to not really know what I was doing. And, um, you know, we'll share information freely and help anybody out I can. It's a, it's it's great. So. I think that's a common theme among birders. Well, Darren, yeah. thank you so much for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. I hope I get to meet you in person sometime. If I'm in your area of Idaho, I will certainly reach out and feel free to do the same if you're in Western Washington. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. Well, how much fun talking to Darren today about birding, about birding in Idaho, about photography, about all of his passions. He is a knowledgeable and enjoyable guest. I hope you enjoyed listening to him. Uh, please uh, check out his Instagram feed and his websites. I'll leave links to those in the podcast notes below. And I'll also, as always, uh, leave a blog post with additional information that might be helpful. I'll try to talk about some of the birding hotspots uh, in, the, in the blog post. I think I'll check some of those out uh, on the eBird uh, checklist and bar charts and, and tell you what I think about some of those places from that perspective also. So thanks for listening. Until next time, good birding, good day. <laughs>